My name is Austin T. Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. This is season three of the podcast from the Center. The Enduring, the Timeless and Fruitful Ministry. No, you're not being rickrolled. The year is 1988. If you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? And that is the quintessential sound of the 80s. Synthesizers, drum machines, keyboard bass lines. Rain Man was the year's biggest movie. You? You're the Rain Man? That was the year that George H.W. Bush was elected president. The people have spoken. The first ever computer virus showed up that year. Caution. Potential infection was detected. And best of all, Kurt Gibson limped around the bases, leading the Dodgers to a World Series win. In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. The world was certainly a lot different 35 years ago than it is today. The same was true in the evangelical church, particularly here in America. Yeah, there certainly was a lot going on in the 1980s. You have the growth of evangelical influence through media organizations like Trinity Broadcasting Network, Paul and Jan Crouch, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, televangelism, those kinds of things. You also have the growth of the moral majority and its influence. The 1980s were the Reagan years, and so politically conservative. And combined with that, you had this push to legislate morality. Groups like Focus on the Family under James Dobson, uh, Liberty University under Jerry Falwell, this push for legislating morality through the religious right and the moral majority. And you also had the development of an evangelical subculture, including evangelical music, artists like Keith Green and Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. So all of this converged to make the 1980s in some ways kind of the height of evangelical influence in terms of culture and politics in America. In the 80s, Christian contemporary music was as popular as any musical genre. It was national news when Keith Green died in a plane crash in 1982. In 1988, Still Closeted, Ray Bolts released his mega hit of emotional manipulation that linked your tax-deductible charitable giving with the salvation of eternal souls. You were there with me We walked upon the streets of gold Beside the crystal sea Christians even had their own pop diva songstress. Amy Grant's 1988 album Lead Me On was a chart topper. politics, and even in music, Christians were pointing towards the mainstream of American society. 
and they were using that growing influence to push for changes in public morality. At the same time, the change Christians sought through culture and politics intersected with a simplified form of evangelism that had become widespread in American Christianity. And then on the other side, you had evangelical evangelism being characterized really based on influences from early generations of revivalism. It emphasized a gospel that really had nothing to do with repentance and had everything to do with if you just make a decision or pray a prayer, then you're in. And the irony is that in both cases, both of those things represent an incomplete understanding of the gospel. Neither of them emphasized true repentance. In the midst of this pursuit of a moral majority and increasing societal influence, in combination with man-centered, decisionistic, mass market evangelism, John MacArthur published what would become his most well-known, most controversial book at the beginning of 1988, The Gospel According to Jesus. The goal? To point the church back to the true gospel, the gospel that Jesus preached, the gospel message that evangelicals from the 1980s had exchanged for cultural influence or lost to revivalism. So what is the gospel that Jesus preached? What did the Savior say about faith and repentance? Must Jesus be Savior and Lord? John has spent a lifetime answering those questions, explaining again and again what it means to truly follow Jesus. We're going to explore this central aspect of John's life and ministry in this episode, one that involves a runaway bestseller, one of the nation's most prominent evangelical seminaries, and the answer to the most pressing of life's questions. What is the gospel according to Jesus? My name is Austin T. Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. This is season three of the podcast from the center, The Enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That's God's will. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There are probably a few of you out there who have listened to every John MacArthur sermon available at gty.org, all 3,500 and counting. If you did, then here's a couple stats at your accomplishment. You're wild. What? You're wild. You listen to, on average, one John MacArthur sermon a day for the past nine and a half years. Or if you listen to John MacArthur eight hours a day every day, you have to listen for more than a year to get through all his preaching. Anyone who has listened to that much of MacArthur's preaching is going to notice a recurring theme, true salvation. What is the gospel? MacArthur is constantly talking about how important the gospel is and that it's our job to make sure we get it right. Here's an example from a 2008 sermon titled, Is Jesus the Only Way? The heart of our faith, of course, is the gospel of salvation, and we must understand the gospel as the gospel truly is in its saving reality and its saving power. 
True Christians have always believed and taught that you can't be saved from eternal hell unless you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe that gospel. You cannot be saved. That is what believers in Scripture have always affirmed, always proclaimed, always embraced. Now, we can get some things wrong without severe eternal consequences. We can't get this wrong without severe eternal consequences. When John MacArthur graduated from seminary in the mid-1960s, he knew he would have to explain the gospel to non-believers, to people outside the church. But he didn't anticipate all the non-believers he would encounter inside the church. I think you know that there has been a very disturbing reality in my life uh, through all of the years of my ministry, and that is the fact that the church is occupied by people who aren't really saved. I have addressed that so many ways I can't even count them. In fact, John MacArthur's first ever sermon at Grace Community Church, back in February of 1969, addressed this issue of true and false believers in the church. He titled it, How to Play Church. We've played sections of this sermon before, but I haven't played you this section. Here's a powerful excerpt. Imagine saying this to your brand new congregation. I would say that the great majority of church members in America today don't even know what it is to be a Christian. And they're dead spiritually. Paul says in Ephesians 2, they're dead in sin. Consequently, dead people are going to constitute a dead church. And the church is not suffering today or dying today because of attacks from the outside. Most churches, Satan wouldn't even waste powder and shot on them. They're dead from the inside. On his first Sunday at Grace Church, John MacArthur knew there could be unconverted people in his church. His suspicions would be proven correct. I knew there were unconverted people there. And um, my approach and still would be, is not to be so direct as to say, I know some of you are on your way to hell and you're trying to make us think you're Christians. That would have been maybe a little too much. But my approach is to let the Word do its work by, by opening it up so that the conviction comes from the text. Why was John MacArthur convinced that there were non-believers in his congregation? Surely the people he had in mind believed they were saved. So why didn't John MacArthur... Well, because of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21, the text for John's first sermon at Grace Church. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name or preached in thy name? And in thy name have cast out demons, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. When John MacArthur published The Gospel According to Jesus in 1988, he was certainly passionate about the book. He called it the most important book I've ever written. But he didn't think it would capture as wide an audience as it did. The Gospel According to Jesus talked a lot about doctrine, had hundreds of technical footnotes, and critiqued the position of several professors at one of the most well-known seminaries in the United States. Not exactly bestseller material. What the book did have was two stellar introductions from two of the biggest names in the Reformed world. In the first, J.I. Packer said, 
It is a fine book, clear, cogent, and edifying, doing for us what is nowhere else done so well, and that is very much needed at this time. I wish it a wide circulation and a thoughtful readership. It will render the Christian world great service. I commend it enthusiastically. The publisher didn't intend to have a second introduction to the book, but when James Montgomery Boyce submitted his blurb, it was way too long for the back cover, so they turned it into a second introduction. There, Boyce wrote, My admiration for John MacArthur grew by quantum leaps as I read the gospel according to Jesus. This is because the book reveals a man whose conscience is clearly taken captive by the word of God. It reveals one who knows how to read the Bible for what it actually says, and who is then fearless in proclaiming that word to our wicked and needy generation. These endorsements were massive. They moved the book into the center of the conversation among evangelicals. The publisher expected to sell 25,000 copies. By the end of the first year, they'd sold a quarter million. As Boyce said at the end of his introduction, the gospel according to Jesus may be one of the most significant books of this decade. The gospel according to Jesus sounds at first, I think, a bit um, common to, to people. What, what is there to say about the gospel according to Jesus? I mean, he died on the cross and rose again, and you believe in him and you receive eternal life. But there is a tremendous amount of confusion about this subject, and people are polarizing on different views. And I think that it's time to make a clear statement about what Jesus taught about the gospel and go back to the beginning. Here are the first three words of the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. MacArthur calls that the single central foundational and distinguishing article of Christianity. So what does that declaration mean? What exactly does the Lordship of Christ have to do with your salvation? Lordship salvation recognizes that in saving faith, there is the recognition of the supreme right of Christ to rule your life, that he is your new master, and that when you believe in Jesus as Savior, you also believe in him as the Lord over your life. That's the familiar voice of Steve Lawson, Dean of the Doctor of Ministry program at the Master Seminary. I recently visited him in his hometown of Dallas, Texas. And as we cruised around, he pointed out the sights and gave me a helpful overview of this issue. You cannot make a false dichotomy between the saviorhood and the lordship of Jesus Christ, that the two are inseparably bound together. So you cannot have Jesus as Savior and reject him as Lord. Uh, that would be like saying, I'm Steve Lawson, that you would accept me as Steve, but not as Lawson. I mean, that's impossible. I can't cut myself in half and give you half of me. It's all or nothing. And it's the same way with Christ, that he commands us to follow him. Uh, that means that we pursue a new direction and a new lifestyle. 
And that begins at the moment of conversion. It's not something that happens five years down the road or ten years down the road and you finally decide to become committed to Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess Jesus as Lord means honoring him as sovereign king. You obey him, trust him, and pledge your loyalty to him. And you can't be a hypocrite. You can't say you believe in Jesus and then not obey him. That's not how lordship or biblical salvation works. Lots of people hear Christ's teachings, but only the ones that do them are in the kingdom. Did you get that? That's the bottom line. There are many people who hear, but if you examine your life and it's all a hearing and not a doing, don't deceive yourself into thinking you're a Christian. That's an excerpt from one of MacArthur's most famous sermons called Empty Hearts. He preached it in 1980 at the end of a year-long journey through the Sermon on the Mount. His text was Matthew 7, 21 through 27. That's the same passage he preached on his first Sunday at Grace Church. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The only validation you will ever have of your salvation is a life of obedience. It is the only possible proof that you really recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna say that again because that's the heart of the message. Obedience is the only validation of your salvation. It is the only possible proof that you recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because if there's no obedience, then your confessing Jesus as Lord is just so much verbal exercise. Salvation is a recognition of a divine standard, a subsequent overwhelming sense of sinfulness, a pleading for God's mercy to receive his righteousness because you desire to fulfill his word. People don't say, well, I'm coming to Christ and I want to be saved, but I don't want to get into all that obedience stuff. You're not a Christian grieves my heart. That exposition of the Sermon on the Mount changed John MacArthur. It defined his ministry in so many ways. It transformed the people of Grace Church, and it took a blowtorch to one of evangelicalism's golden calves. The text showed this pastor and his congregation that Christianity is a whole life commitment to Jesus. It's far more than a one-time mantra. You don't repeat a prayer and go to heaven. You don't get to call yourself a Christian and then live however you please. You don't get to say one thing in church on Sunday and live the complete opposite during the week. That's exactly what Jesus was warning against at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. If scripture is this clear, how had the American church gotten it so wrong? Why were there so many churches downplaying the need to follow Jesus as Lord? 
We'll answer that question when we come back. Hey, really quick, if this podcast has inspired you to actually consider pastoral ministry, and we've heard from a number of you who have said that it has, there's something I'd like you to do. Would you visit our website at the seminary, tms.edu, and request information about our residential Master of Divinity program at the Master Seminary? I don't believe that there is any other seminary program that would better prepare you for an enduring ministry. Every aspect of the curriculum points to the pulpit. We're seeking to prepare you to handle the Word of God accurately and proclaim it faithfully for a lifetime. And since the seminary is located on the campus of Grace Community Church, every student has the opportunity to serve God's people immediately as you prepare for a lifetime of servant leadership. So if you want a ministry that lasts, make sure you're fully equipped. Go to tms.edu today. Now, back to that question I asked a minute ago. Why were so many churches downplaying the need to follow Jesus? Well, the answer starts at the altar. Just as I am one plea but up in the church, especially if it was a Baptist or Pentecostal church, I'm guessing that song takes you back, way back to Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, back to Wednesday youth group and summer revival meetings. I want everyone to bow their eyes and close their heads. Every eye bowed, every head closed. There's a whole genre of music designed just for the invitation. It's true. Google it up. Church invitation songs and you will find a plethora of emotionally charged music intended to help people walk the aisle. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Alan Eugene Jackson's neo-traditional country rendition of one of the church's most popular invitation songs shows just how significant a part of American Christianity the invitation system has become. After the pastor finishes his sermon, the music swells. While it's playing, the pastor urges members of the congregation to come to the front, pray at the altar, talk to someone, raise a hand, make a decision to follow Jesus, or rededicate their lives to him. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. In 
my conversation with Dr. Nathan Busnitz, he talked about the theology that lies beneath the altar call and the music that accompanies it. Well, when you think about the backdrop of a evangelistic approach that really is grounded in Arminian theology, which of course corresponds well to American values because it emphasizes free will and my choice. And if I made a decision for Jesus, then it doesn't matter how I live after that. That was essentially the way that the gospel was being presented. That form of evangelism completely misses the truth of the biblical gospel in which repentance is at the heart of conversion. What does it mean to be regenerated? What does it mean to be converted? It means that God has transformed the sinner's heart so that the sinner now turns from sin and turns in love to follow his savior. And that had gotten lost, that had been eclipsed. Across America, revival became a ministry strategy, not a work of the spirit. In fact, America's most popular evangelical was a revival preacher. At the end of each sermon, he'd press his audience for a decision. I'm going to ask you to come. And by coming, you're saying, I open my heart and give my life to Christ. I want a change in my life. Get up and come. I'm going to ask that no one leave, please. Wait for it. Look, I'm not saying a good, healthy church can't call people to follow Christ at the end of the service. At Grace Church, John MacArthur encourages anyone with questions or conviction to come to the prayer room just outside the worship center. And he does so nearly every week. But the issue is, what is the altar call communicating about salvation? Is it making it nothing more than a momentary decision, one driven more by emotion than anything else? That's MacArthur's concern, one he's expressed more than once. Here he is from a 2005 sermon talking about decisionism, what it is and where it came from. We've grown up, some of us have, in evangelistic churches and, and we're pretty familiar with how we do evangelism. We're familiar with what's often called the invitation at the end of a sermon or the altar call, all of that uh, brand new stuff really from the, well, from the 19th century. It all is the product of Charles Finney, who was a lawyer turned preacher back in, uh, in the East Coast, primarily ministering in New York State. It was Finney who, um, who devised these uh, mechanical means to get people saved. And Finney believed that salvation was um, all of man that it was all dependent upon the human will. And so anything you could do to manipulate the human will, you do. And so he created what was called the anxious bench, which was up in the front where people would come and they would get down to the anxious bench and they would be given a prayer to pray and anything that could move them down that path. So you could even develop a sequence, get them to do something that was easy to do, like raise your hand when everybody had their eyes closed, and then move them to step two, get them to walk down the aisle when the music was playing. Uh, and another way to do that was, and it's still being done today, when you hold an evangelistic meeting and you want people to come forward, you get counselors or other people who are already Christians start coming, they create a flow, people get caught up in the flow, and down they come because you've made it easy for them, and they get down to the altar or the anxious bench or whatever. You keep singing and working on their emotions and 
And when they get there, you give them a prayer, you get them in a mass group, you see this all the time, and you say these words, and after you've said these words, you're in. Or maybe more individually presented to people, sometimes in a book or perhaps on a radio or television or whatever. Pray this prayer, say these words, and you're saved. It's, it's just that easy. Now, we've been warned many times through the years here about easy believism. We've been warned many times about cheap grace, shallow repentance. Scripture is very clear about that. But it's pretty much a dominating approach in the, the evangelical world in which we live. And here's more from MacArthur pushing back against the idea that our salvation assurance is based on having a memory of a decision that we once made. We have made such a fetish out of decisionism. We have so isolated and identified this little formula and this little prayer that you pray at some point as being the moment of salvation, that if you don't have that little moment that you signed a card or raised your hand or walked an aisle or prayed your prayer or did your little formula thing, you can't identify when it happened, so maybe it never happened. I remember a man saying to me, last Sunday morning I settled my salvation. I said, how did you do that? He was here in the church. He said, on my way home I stopped on Roscoe Boulevard. And I never could remember the moment I was saved, and so I never felt saved. And so I got out of my van, he was in a van, he said, and I went over to the sidewalk, the grass between the curb and the sidewalk, and I took out a piece of wood and I hammered it into the ground. And I drove that stake and I said, this is, I think it was June, uh, uh, past June, this is June something and this is the day I am committing my life to Jesus Christ. And now I know I'm saved because I know when I did that. And so I had to pull up his stake, (laughs) metaphorically speaking. But there are some people who have been so overexposed to a decisionistic approach or what you call decisional regeneration. There's some point in time, some mystical moment when you do your little formula and you're zapped by God. Now, for some people, there is a moment in time. Obviously, for many people, there was a very decisive moment in which they exercised their faith in Jesus Christ. But for many, many people, particularly those raised in a Christian environment, they can't identify that transformation. They can't identify that moment because they have always believed. Okay, so we've answered the first question. Where did this altar call, decisionistic view of salvation come from? Now let's get to the second question. What does it have to do with John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus? It argued that the altar call, decisionistic, low-commitment approach to evangelism, doesn't have much in common with the gospel that Jesus preached. How did Jesus evangelize? What did he tell people? What did he come to call sinners to? And if the answer to that is what Jesus said, repentance, then how can you say repentance is a imposition on the gospel. That's Phil Johnson, executive director of Grace to You. He's pointing out that the gospel message of Jesus was focused on repentance, a hatred of sin and rejection of it. And that's quite different than the gospel message so often proclaimed during modern American invitation systems. Steve Lawson picked up on that same theme, that Jesus called for a whole life commitment, not just a momentary decision. You cannot be born again with the new birth and continue to live the old life. Put it another way, you cannot go through the narrow gate and walk the broad path. 
It's a narrow gate and a narrow path. It's a broad gate and it's a broad path, but you cannot mix and match the two. And so if you go through the narrow gate, you can only go down the narrow path. So that's at the heart of this issue. To put it another way, justification is inseparably connected to sanctification. And sanctification begins the moment one is declared righteous by God in the act of justification. So this is all tied together and is critically important that the preacher understands theology and doctrine and how this is interconnected and inseparable. And so that was at the heart of the issue with Dallas Seminary. Hold on a second. What does this place Steve Lawson calls Dallas Seminary have to do with lordship salvation? It turns out a whole bunch. You could make the argument that John MacArthur's most famous, most read book, The Gospel According to Jesus, wouldn't exist if there weren't shenanigans at Dallas Theological Seminary. DTS is a non-denominational school that started in 1924, but by the middle of the 20th century, Dallas was the premier conservative seminary in the country. Some of the most recognizable, influential evangelical leaders over the last 50 years graduated from Dallas, including Tony Evans, David Jeremiah, J. Vernon McGee, Haddon Robinson, Chuck Swindoll, and Andy Stanley? Yeah, I went to Dallas during what I would call the glory days of Dallas. I mean, my professors were Charles Ryrie, J. Dwight Pentecost, uh, John Walford, uh, Howard Hendricks. You know, these men were well-known and uh, other men who did great things for God. Charles Ryrie, who I loved very much, I was a systematic theology major and took his classes. I took the last class he ever taught at Dallas Seminary. Zane Hodges was on campus, though I never had him for a class. And nevertheless, it was the seeds of what I would call a hyper grace that was being sown um, into the soil uh, of the seminary. Dallas was training pastors who were minimizing the importance of biblical repentance and some of their professors like Zane Hodges and Charles Ryrie were actually coming up with theological defenses for why repentance was not necessary or essential to the gospel. As a student at Moody, I took at least uh, three or four classes where Charles Ryrie's book, Balancing the Christian Life, was required reading. If you've ever read the gospel according to Jesus, you've seen the names Ryrie and Hodges scattered throughout the footnotes. They were the two most prominent proponents of a view called free grace or no lordship salvation. These Dallas Seminary professors rejected the idea that you had to turn from sin to become a Christian. Here's Phil Johnson talking about Ryrie's famous book, Balancing the Christian Life. So I had a well-worn copy of that book, which includes a chapter that's titled, Must Jesus Be Lord to Be Savior? And Ryrie took the position that any mention of Christ's lordship or repentance or commitment to Christ or love for Christ, all of these things, he said, are impositions on the gospel. That when you speak to an unbeliever about Christ, you present him as savior and you call for faith and you don't mention repentance or commitment or Christ's lordship or obedience or any of those things because then you, you endanger making them think there's a work they have to do 
in order to be saved. After college, Phil quickly discovered that Ryrie's ideas were being adopted all over the place, including the church where he was ministering. So I was a youth pastor in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I had a youth group mainly consisting of kids whose parents had raised them in the church. And um, I remember vividly my first meeting with them when I was hired to be the the new youth pastor, a meeting a bunch of kids I'd never met before. And there weren't many, there were maybe 20 in the group. And so we went around and I had each one of them tell me a little bit about yourself, what you like. And if you're a Christian, when did you become a Christian? Every one of those kids professed to be a Christian. And every one of them said that they believed they were Christians because when they were little, and most of them were talking about when they were two or three years old, too young even to remember it, their mom led them in a prayer to ask Jesus into their heart, and that's what they hung their hope of salvation on. And, um, uh, you know, I watched watched their lives as I dealt with them. I was there for three years working with pretty much the same group of kids. And after a few months, I began to be concerned that I don't think a lot of these kids are true believers at all. They didn't really seem to have any love for Christ or any motive to pursue righteousness or anything that you normally would see as the fruit of saving faith. What Phil experienced in Florida was happening all over the country. The invitation system was being applied in millions of Christian homes. Regeneration that opens the eyes of a sinner was no longer the concern. Now the repetition of a formulaic prayer was an automatic ticket into heaven. No concern for true conversion no understanding of the genuine gospel or the nature of saving faith. Instead, pray the prayer and you're in. All people had to do was repeat the sinner's prayer and they would always be saved no matter what the rest of their life looked like. I had a friend who was an antinomian. I posed this question to him. Suppose a total unbeliever goes to a public debate between an atheist and a Christian and the Christian goes first and gives the gospel and this auditor hears it and says, that's reasonable. I think I believe that. This guy makes sense. But then the atheist gets up and answers and persuades him, no, all right, I'm going to continue to be an unbeliever. Does the five minutes that he thought he believed count for eternity? And my antinomian friend said, of course, he believed. He's in. Phil knew that his friend wasn't coming up with this view of salvation on his own. He had picked it up either first or second hand from one of Dallas Seminary's prominent professors. It was so much affiliated with Dallas that James Montgomery Boyce referred to it as the Dallas Doctrine. What was happening in the no lordship world was this um, effort in evangelism was pretty shallow. Uh, Sing an invitation song, raise your hand, come forward, pray a prayer and you're saved. And then there was just an immediate responsibility. This is how we were all trained in those days. As soon as someone prayed the sinner's prayer, your job was to tell them they're really saved and you shouldn't doubt it. So you're basically giving them a false confidence because you don't know that. But that that was high on the sort of on the evangelistic um, priority list because people had doubts about salvation. They always 
always do. And we were supposed to short circuit that at the moment of their salvation by telling them, well, you've prayed the prayer, you've, you've said you've believed, uh, you're, you're a real believer. I, I could never say that. I could never be talking, and I talked to a lot of people in personal evangelism, I was involved with young people. I could never say, well, now you're a Christian, don't ever doubt it. I couldn't say that. I could say, you prayed the prayer, and if that prayer was answered, it's going to show up in the transformation of your life. We'll have to see it to, to know it. Because he believes salvation will transform your life, John's been accused of distorting the gospel of grace, adding works to the salvation equation. Nothing could be further from the truth. MacArthur has always believed that every salvation is an act of God, that God's saving grace is an instantaneous work accomplished by God and God alone. How does a person become right with God? By doing so many of these things and so many of those kind of things and so many spiritual activities? No, you become right with God by believing what God says, by believing He is the God He reveals Himself to be, by believing enough to do what He says. In the act of belief, He transmits His righteousness. When a person believes the gospel, they are brought from death to life in a moment. Saving faith rests on Christ's forgiveness and justification and acceptance before God. Faith trusts in God's free offer of salvation and immediately converts a sinner into an accepted child of God, free from all the consequences of their sin. J-Mac has said this countless times through the decades. Well, is faith a work? Is faith something that I exercised and therefore apprehended salvation? No, because we just read not of yourselves, verse 8, not of works, verse 9. So whatever faith is, it isn't from you and it isn't your works. By faith, simply believing that, God in His mercy takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes it to you because your sins were imputed to Christ when He died on the cross. We understand that salvation is by faith alone. That is a foundational truth in Christian teaching, a biblical truth. Salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. That is the singular true gospel of Christianity. Anything added to that is damning heresy, bewitching heresy. The church of Jesus Christ is not made up of good people. It's made up of bad people. It's not made up of people who think they're righteous. It's made up of people who know they're not. It's not made up of the people who have attained to a certain acceptable degree with God. It's made up of people who know they could never attain to an acceptable place before God. It's not made up of people who think they're good. It's made up of people who know they're wicked. It's not made up of people who have achieved righteousness on their own. It's made up of people who have received righteousness from God as a gift. This is the gospel. Look, we could go on and on and on with examples. 
There's no shortage of MacArthur preaching the biblical truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But John's also consistently said that God's work of salvation doesn't end at the moment of conversion. Here again is Dr. Busnitz explaining the nature of saving faith. It's true that the Reformation understanding of the gospel was a gospel of grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, based on the finished work of Christ alone, solus Christus. And those Latin phrases were intended to summarize the core doctrines of the Reformation period and those Reformed convictions. But when the Reformers talk about faith alone, it's important to understand what they meant by the word faith. For them, true saving faith was a repentant faith. Faith involved your mind, your heart, and your will. It involved mental assent, it involved an emotional affection, and it involved a volitional component. So this isn't just, I changed my mind about something and now I'm a Christian. That's That doesn't come later until the second great awakening under guys like Charles Finney. For the reformers, faith alone meant a repentant faith. It was a genuine saving faith. And if you look at the writings of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, any of the magisterial reformers, you find very quickly that they never excluded repentance from the gospel. They understood that the gospel results in not just justification, which is a change in our status before God, but also regeneration, which is a change in our nature, which is the essence of conversion. And for a sinner to be converted means that he's going to be sanctified and that sanctification process will bear fruit. So the fruits of repentance will always be seen in the life of someone who's truly converted. Martin Luther, the great reformer, famously said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith comes with repentance. It changes you. It makes you a new creation. It gives you new affections. It transforms your character. It produces the fruit of the Spirit. That happens to all those who submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. If you ask me the bottom line characteristic of a truly converted person, I would say this. The person who is genuinely converted, transformed, given a new nature so that they have exercised true saving faith, they've been transformed, that person, bottom line, will love Jesus Christ. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean that because we love him, we never offend him. It does mean when we offend him, we hurt because we violated that love. Christians aren't perfect. Christians will be pained by their imperfection because it violates the God they love. You remember what uh, Paul said in uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. He says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Cursing comes to those who don't love Christ. Conversely, blessing must come to those who love Christ. That's what Peter said, whom having not seen, you love. That is the bottom line characteristic of a Christian. If I say to a person, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Or if I said to someone, tell me how you feel about the Lord Jesus Christ, I would be able, probably better than any other way, to discern the reality of the state of their heart. If they say to me, I don't like Christ at all, I have no interest in him whatsoever, I wouldn't really care what their past decision might be. I don't know what they did in the past, but if they can say flatly, I have no interest in Christ, he compels me to do nothing, I have no particular desire to follow him at all, that is not, that is not the, the spirit moving and that is not the evidence of a new nature. 
After the gospel according to Jesus became a publishing phenomenon, MacArthur said that he had said everything he needed or wanted to say on the subject of Lordship Salvation. He'd answered the critics. He'd shown anyone who was willing to read how Jesus approached evangelism. Jesus always preached repentance, faith, and the life of obedience to him. MacArthur had made his case. But just five years after the gospel according to Jesus, John had more to say. His sequel, The Gospel According to the Apostles, sought to resolve the seeming tension between faith and works, showing how authentic faith goes to work, loving God and others from a new heart. A decade later, there were more threats to the gospel, superficial versions of Christianity that turned the gospel into a health and wealth message, not a call to discipleship. So John wrote a book called Hard to Believe. Then he followed that up with The Gospel According to Paul, and the gospel according to God, two more works with a simple goal, to accurately explain the gospel message. For more than 54 years, John has been keeping the gospel at the center of his ministry, explaining it, reveling in it, repeating it again and again for believers and unbelievers alike. And the church is stronger for it because MacArthur has clearly explained what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. Discipleship, more than just being a learner, being an intimate follower, having an intimate relationship, following to the point where you would go as far as death out of love. There's no question about the fact that the only message Jesus ever proclaimed was a message of discipleship. The call that Jesus gave was a call to follow him, a call to submission, a call to obedience. It was never a plea to make some kind of momentary decision to acquire forgiveness and peace and heaven and then go on living any way you wanted. The invitations of Jesus to the lost were always direct calls to a costly commitment. And if we willingly affirm our loyalty to Christ, then we are the ones that he will affirm his loyalty to as well. If we're willing to say, I belong to Christ, he'll be willing to say, this one belongs to me. Thanks for listening to season three of the MacArthur Center podcast. Our next episode talks about those who seem for a little while to follow Christ, but then reject him entirely. How are we to think about people like that? What do we do when that happens to someone in our lives that we care about? That's next time on The Enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. The Enduring is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Vuolo. A special word of thanks to Phil Johnson and Steve Lawson for their contributions to this episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd ask you to please like and subscribe. It helps other people discover us. And for more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, please visit tms.edu. ATD, out. I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. Nice, man. I am dangerous.